Welcome back to part two of EcoLation's visit to the BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition 2024. In the last episode, we looked at how information technology can shape how we see the climate crisis, but hot on its heels, the other subject that comes up again and again is nature and our relationship with the wider natural world. Well, I'm Ronan Scullion. I'm Nico Hill. We're from St. Coleman's College in Uri. Our project is about Loch Ness and it's been polluted by blue-green algae when there's excess nutrients in the water and they cause algal blooms. These are caused by phosphates and nitrates in the water and sources of these are inorganic fertilizers, sewage, food and drink additives and then the increased rainfall runs the nutrients into the water. I have family that live near the loch. I'm very affected by it every day since this happens. So I was thinking about them, but then I also thought about the wildlife and other people that live around it. And I was thinking that how could we make a change? How could we help people and the environment? So we got help from the University of Malaysia. These told us that they used shells which contain 96% calcium carbonate. And calcium carbonate can absorb those phosphates. We found out that as the concentration of our solutions went up, the absorbance of the phosphates also increased. So this shows that the eggshells are really working in Loch Ness. My name is Keen. Cara. My name is Connor, and we're from St. Joseph's Community College, Clare. Our project uses seaweed to create a biochar which stops gas emissions from when slurry is spread and retains nutrients when slurry is spread. We start by putting our seaweed through a juicer and that removes the moisture content. Then it goes through a process called supercritical extraction and that splits the oil from the seaweed. And after that, it goes into an oven called a pyrolysis oven at 300 degrees to turn it into our biochar. Then we mix our biochar with slurry, which mitigates the odour of the slurry. And when we spread it on the land using a dribble bar, that retains the nutrients from the slurry in the soil. You know, there's lots of different regulations that are coming into place now. The farmers have to reduce their emissions and this is a great way to reduce your carbon emissions. You don't have to spread as much slurry and you don't have to spread as often. It just improves the overall soil health. Hi, my name is Ellie Kelly. And my name is Ava Gordon. We are transition year students in Jesus and Mary Secondary School in a strong county Sligo. We were quite concerned about the climate crisis and the over-reliance that many people have on non-renewable fuel sources, for example, coal, oil and peat. And we live beside and go to school beside uh, our local beach and we knew that we might be able to produce uh, biofuel from seaweed, so we said we'd give it a go. I suppose it's a renewable source and we're not going to run out of it as much as we would the likes of coal, oil and peat. It is quite easily grown as well and it's very easy harvested because... Our world is covered in about 70% of water, so we're never going to run out of water. We decided to do a climate-related study as we were, I suppose, concerned about the over-reliance people have on all the non-renewable sources. I think they could be put into practice fairly easily on a larger scale, but on a smaller scale it's quite complicated because the cost of it all and just like having to do it in school hours as well. I'm Quiva and my name's Alyssa. And, and we're, we're from, from Desmond College in Limerick. Our project is an eco-carbon capture device and it helps to purify CO2 in a room. Using a soda stream, you pump CO2 into a gas buckner flask filled with moss that was homegrown. Through this, it purifies the CO2 and then less CO2 is in the room. The soda stream is just the experiment, but moss on its own is an excellent air purifier. It's very important because air pollution is one of the biggest silent killers in Europe. Almost 400,000 people die from it each year and it needs to be spoken about more. Companies like Dyson, they're using so much chemicals in their like companies, but we think that something like this, it's, you can get moss anywhere, you can get it at home, like it's everywhere. And we think that something like this, even just having like a little sample of moss in a classroom, would help and it would be a lot better for the environment than making these big machines in big companies. 
My name is Ali Sheedy and I'm from Kinsale Community School, County Cork. I analysed how biodegradable microplastics affect the DNA, genetic code and overall structure of plants from making soil infertile. I planted 500 cress seeds, 250 of them were known as the control where I just planted the seeds normally and the other 250 had microplastics, biomicroplastics, biopoly, which I grinded up with coffee grinder and I put them in the soil and I mixed it all up and then I planted them. I basically measured the height and the leaf amount and then I put them into a tea test and the tea test showed that the control had way more leaves and was triple the height in comparison to the contaminated. So I found out that biodegradable microplastics do affect the plant structure. Bio means that they break down naturally, but there's two types of bio. There is industrially and home, and usually industries never advertise which one it is. So a lot of people just assume that you can degrade them in your back garden at home, whereas no, because it has a negative effect on the environment, as I've proven. I'm Lucy DeFuita. I'm Kate McGann. Uh, Grace O'Sullivan. From Public School in Rishkane and Ken Mayer. Our project is about oyster mushrooms and how they can degrade plastic and it can be used to dispose of household waste in a sustainable way. We always knew we wanted to do a project about plastic since it's such a big problem in our environment. So once we found out the mushrooms were able to degrade plastic, we knew that that's what we wanted to do. You can grow mushrooms just at home because they're really easy to grow. You can buy them from a local garden centre. You chop up your plastic. You can use any really type of household plastic put it in with the mushrooms and it speeds up how they how fast they degrade. All waste, especially plastic, contributes so much to climate change and Ireland produces so much waste we knew you know there has to be a solution to the problem. If we were able to get it widespread and make mushroom farms or something then people could bring their plastic waste to like an environment like a dump except it gets chopped up by us and we put it on the mushrooms. I'm Marcus. I'm Josh. And we're from Arsgerish, Limerick. We originally got the idea when I saw a woman that I was staying with, she was throwing her coffee grounds into a fire to keep going. Then we started thinking of ways this could be used in a more efficient and hassle-free way, and we came up with the idea of fire lighters. Our project wasn't really anything to do with the fires, it was more to get rid of ingredients that would usually be thrown out. Currently, over 40 million tonnes of coffee grounds are wasted annually, contributing to over 2.3 billion cubic metres of methane produced annually. The methane is 28 times worse for the environment than CO2, so that's really the main focus, just kind of lowering that figure. I'm Abigail. I'm Erica. And I'm Olivia, and we're from Loretto Secondary School, Balbriggan. Our project is about ash trees and ash dieback. It's a continuation from our research that we did last year. So ash dieback is a disease that's affecting the common ash tree, both in Ireland and abroad. It causes multiple symptoms within the tree, such as leaf loss, crown dieback, and epicormic growth, and essentially cuts off the water supply to the tree, rendering it useless for production and killing the tree itself. This affects both our culture and our biodiversity here within Ireland as you know ash is such a vital part of Ireland's culture with the hurling and then within our environment as well so many flora and fauna are dependent on the ash tree to survive. For our in vivo study we applied the treatments on the leaves and we also applied it through injection. From all of our research we have a treatment that it's a one to two ratio of the two hormones which we studied and was successfully able to decrease the growth of the fungus up to 92% and on average of 82% while also within our in vivo study so within the trees themselves delayed the symptoms of ash dieback as well as had no effect on the overall growth or health of the tree. So the next steps for our research would be a hope to do a large scale in vivo study 
study testing the treatment's effect on fungal inhibition with both mature ash trees and previously infected ash trees in the hopes that this could stop or prevent the growth of the fungus and slow down the growth within already infected trees. 90% of ash trees within Ireland are infected by the disease and it is believed that the for the ones that don't already have the disease are somewhat resistant to it. That's why our research is so important. We've looked into rewilding a lot in the past few years. The concept of improving Ireland's countryside and even our gardens to invite nature back in and use these nature-based solutions to help combat the worst impacts of climate change. Again, we've gathered just a few students interested in the topic to discuss it further. As most of you know, Ireland is a country that was once entirely covered in forest. At one point, native woodlands covered almost 80% of our land. Across mainland Europe, the average tree cover per country sits at around 35%. But in Ireland now, just 11% of our country is covered in trees. And many of these trees are non-native. With me in studio are Maeve, Nisha and Saif from Athlone Community College. Maeve. Could you tell us what your project is all about? Our project was an investigation into the environmental effects of a monocultural plantation forest compared to a native Irish forest. So the monocultural plantation forests are made up primarily of Sitka spruce, which is non-native to Ireland and it doesn't take in as much carbon as our native trees. So it's just not as great for the environment and it also supports less biodiversity, so there's less animals and plants that live within these forests, whereas the native forests have much higher levels of biodiversity, they take in much more carbon from the atmosphere and they support much more types of animals and our native animals and plants much better. And Saiv, can you explain what kind of trees make up our tree cover right now and why that is? So out of the 11% of Ireland that is covered in trees, actually only 2% of that is native forest and the rest is primarily Sitka spruce. The reason for that is after the Ulster plantation in the 1600s, much of our tree cover was cut down. And then in about 1908, we had the Sitka spruce first being planted. And we just continued to plant this because it was cheap and quick to grow compared to our native trees, which took a lot of time and did not make as much money. Nisha, could you explain what the forest floor of a Sitka spruce plantation looks like? So a spruce it tends to have a lot less biodiversity and living things within them. They're often described as green deserts. So the floor is covered in both pine needles and pine cones, which have not yet decomposed and probably never will. It stores carbon and it's never put into the soil. It means that it's more acidic and vegetation cannot grow within them. So if you do see anything on the floor, it tends to be moss, such as utricularian and sphagnum. But other than that, it lacks completely life of both flora and fauna. Maeve, the opposite, what does the forest floor of a woodland filled with native trees and plants look like? The forest floor of a native forest is much more alive. It has a variety of different plants that are native to the country and it also then supports more animals such as our red deer, our red fox, our Irish hares. They are able to live better in these forests because there is a wider range of food for them to eat. And the floor is alive, it's covered in different types of moss again, but it's also covered in heather. You see different types of trees, you see the saplings growing, it's much, much more alive than our plantations. And Saif, what can be done to try and even up the balance and improve our tree cover? What we would hope to do is that rather than uh, planting these monoculture plantations, we would instead plant multicultural plantations that are made up of fast-growing Irish trees such as the alder and the sycamore. And we would have to introduce this slowly so as not to damage our forestation industry. 
but we hoped that over time we could slowly replace the Sitka spruce with Irish trees that could still be used for forestation purposes. And this last question is just for all of you. How hopeful are you that we can regrow our forests and what benefits could we see? We'll start with you, Nate. Very hopeful that we'll be able to return to some semblance of what we originally had by, like I said, planting our native trees and that we would, at some point, it would help with other rewilding, like bringing more animals and even bringing the Irish wolf back. So as Maeve said, the major benefits of rewilding Ireland would mean that our wildlife would continue to thrive as they would now have their own native ecosystems and their own native environments to live in rather than these monoculture plantations which are very hard for them to live in. Native forests help with carbon sequestration so when carbon's in the air they'll take in the carbon and then as they're deciduous the leaves will fall and carbon will then be put into the soil for them to grow back as flowers or whatever so I'd hope that well I know that if we were to replant our native forests that it would definitely help with the carbon problems in the world and take away from global warming and climate change. Rewilding is a subject that has split people's opinions, often along urban and rural lines, with the passing of the EU's Nature Restoration Law. However, it's also a subject that will have to be acted upon in a very broad way in the coming years. Amy and Ella, could you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your project? So our names are Amy McCullough and Ella White, and we are transition year students in St Mary's in McCroom. Our project goes into an investigation into farmers' attitudes towards rewilding and reforestation practices in Ireland. This project comes as a result of the new EU nature restoration law and one of the main aims of this law was to restore biodiversity in Ireland and basically just to maintain the things that nature does already for us for free. So for example, just like providing us with clean air, clean water, etc. When we were coming up with this project idea, there were a lot of news in the headlines about this law and we both come from farming backgrounds and we understand there's a lot of controversy within the farming community about rewilding and especially the payments that are being made available to farmers at the moment. Basically, we just wanted to find out if farmers are willing to allow their farms to become wilder and help solve the global biodiversity crisis. And Amy, what were your findings and how did you conduct the research? We carried out a survey using Google Forms and our survey demographic was members of Ireland's large farming community and in our local area. So we went as far as Cork, Clare and we also went to students in UCC as well. And we surveyed a total of 115 farmers. And Ella, how open to rewilding were the people that you did speak with? From our results, we found that farmers are really open to the idea of rewilding and do know about the benefits of rewilding, but they have very mixed opinions on whether they would implement rewilding practices. And Amy, from your findings, how quickly do you think we might see the change? Did you find that for many it was already underway? I know for myself, like based on our results, we found that a lot of the farms that we surveyed were, were smaller farmers and that just goes show that like farming it probably is in decline like and basically we found out that uh, smaller farms are more likely to rewild their farms than larger farmers because obviously they're not making much money from their farms I know myself like Ella comes from a larger farm I come from a smaller farm our farm is only about 15 acres and my dad he would have um, implemented some rewilding practices this farm it goes back generations like but um, it's a part-time job for him essentially and he has implemented some rewilding practices whereas um, Ella knows herself like her farm it's very much like their generation profit and so they can't like Large farmers are less likely to be wild as it's their only source of profit because smaller farmers are most likely part-time they will have another source of income so it's more, most likely that smaller farmers will be the ones that are carrying out rewilding practices at the moment. So I'm going to introduce our next guest 
as I think that his project might be another step, and one that has been much spoken about. Kian, your project is all about wolves. My project, I did basically two different experimental methods. I was looking at the barriers to wolf-free introduction in Ireland. So some of the most well like talked about barriers are is there enough space? Is there enough food? Are there enough remote, wild enough areas? A lot of people would think that Ireland is just farmland, but that's really not the case. We have a lot of wild land. My other method was a survey where I was looking at how demographic and knowledge affects attitudes towards wolves. So I was seeing, will younger people be more up for wolf reintroduction? Will older people be more against wolf reintroduction? It really just kind of how knowledge and age affect attitudes. And can I ask, are there examples where this kind of rewilding with a predator has made a difference? Yeah, well, the most famous one is Yellowstone National Park in America. A lot of people have probably heard about it. It was when they brought in a wolf pack into this massive national park, probably the size of Ireland province, and they just let them loose and kind of just let them did their wolfy thing. They ate deer, they controlled smaller predator populations. And what we saw was a trophic cascade. Trophic levels are the levels in the food chain. So we saw something that was once part of the food chain that had been removed, being brought back, and its effects on everything else in the food chain. So we saw mass regeneration of forests. Pretty much every species increased in population, except for coyotes and deer, which were overpopulated. And really, it went from kind of just being another park that was in decline in biodiversity, kind of on a constant downward spiral. It's now, currently today, one of the last bastions of like true wilderness in North America. So Amy and Ella, you're both from farming backgrounds and are keen to expand the reach of rewilding. What do you think and how do you think your sample group would respond to the idea of wolves as part of the farm rewilding? Um, simply based on our results and opinions, we believe that farmers would not be interested in the reintroduction of native of the native wolf pack into Ireland because this would have a huge knock-on effect on ecosystems and the farming ecosystem. Ireland's agriculture industry makes up 66.6% of land coverage, and that other 44.4% includes like obviously residential. Like obviously, Ireland used to be very rural, and nowadays becoming a lot more urbanised. And if any large predator were to be introduced, based on these statistics, they wouldn't have a large enough area to sustain themselves. First, we believe that we'd focus more on the reintroduction of native flora first before bringing any large predators back into Ireland's ecosystem. And Ella, would you like to add on that? Ireland has no vast landscapes of wild areas anymore. We would need to reintroduce more flora species before reintroducing large predators. And Kian, in your research you found out how much support this idea had in at least one area? Well, I found the level of support across a wide range of demographics, but I think what was the most interesting one was based on knowledge. People that were more knowledgeable about wolves and kind of just their role in the ecosystem were a lot more likely to be up for reintroduction than people that weren't really sure. Because a lot of those people, their fear of wolves might stem from not really knowing much about them as kind of the unknown is scary. But that's the main takeaway. That was the main group of people. So I'd like to ask each of you, what work do you think needs to be done to get people to embrace rewilding as a concept from woodlands and ponds right up to actually bringing up wolves? We need to work with the farmers and not against them more than, like, there's a negative stigma around farmers and their opinions on rewilding and the environment. We need to work with the farmers now. From our, like, results, we found that farmers are open to the idea of rewilding, but, like, they need compensation for all the losses that they're losing farmland and we need to compensate them fairly and equally like that for if they were to rewild. Yeah, we just all need to be on the same page about this, I think. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think people need to be educated on the effects of 
not having these woods and not having these clean rivers to know that it can be done to mutually benefit everyone like wolves well it's true that there's not many large landscapes left the national parks are a good case of areas that they could be brought in and they could bring good ecological benefits and social benefits to the people around the area so really it, it just needs to be done in a way that everyone benefits from it because it can be done in that way and yeah just everyone needs to know their stuff brilliant and just one last question for all three of you it's not directly you know associated but in a perfect world what would you like the ireland of 2040 to look like i think just a lot more diverse really everything about ireland like our environment our economy our just our our cities and it's i think we just need to be a lot more different a lot more diverse a lot more change yeah i think we would like to have biodiversity restored to ireland by 2040 And that's it from us here in the RDS. A huge thank you to the organisers and all the people we've spoken to over the past few days. Like last year, the wealth of people looking at solutions to the various issues we now face, nature-based or scientific, is really heartening. Ecolution will be back this spring, but for now, it's goodbye. Ecolution was presented by me, Evie Kenny, and is produced by Nikki Coughlin. Podcast. For more sort RTE Kids Podcast.